0: Well, good morning, church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we can approach your throne of grace this morning. We thank you for the confidence that we have that's not rooted in anything that we do, anything that we are, anything that we have done, but it's all rooted in Jesus Christ and his work accomplished on our behalf. And so as we draw to your word, we ask for grace, we ask for the spirit to work in our hearts to take this word and plant it deep inside us, that it would just cause worship. I pray, bless us this morning, in his holy name we ask, amen. Well, I'm glad that you guys are here this morning, and uh, if you're like me, you probably could have used a couple more hours of sleep. But the Lord is good. His uh, grace and strength renews every morning. I want to ask you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Last week, we started a new Christmas series, The Word Became Flesh. In it, we want to focus on a few aspects of Jesus' birth, essentially answering the question why did Jesus take on the body? What is the point, ultimately, of Christmas? Last Sunday, Max took us to the beginning, the Gospel of John chapter 1, and argued from the text that Jesus was born to reveal the Father. That the point of him coming and taking on the body is so that we would know the Father. Know who he is. Know what he does. Now this morning, I want us to look at another aspect of Christ's incarnation, namely the atonement, the atonement. Now as we go to Hebrews 10, how many of you here in our church still use DVDs? How many of you still know what a DVD player is? You know, last uh, night we had our GY uh, youth party and uh, for our white elephant, Uh, a few of our guys actually got a DVD, and you should see the look on some of the junior hire's faces. They had no idea what to do with it. Uh, Where to put it, uh, we just live, right? They grow up in a culture where, you know, you talk more about Netflix and Hulu and, and, and YouTube more than you talk about DVDs. But for those of you who grew up with DVDs, and those of you who still use them, you probably know of a DVD home screen. So when you put it in, and when you start to play, on each DVD, when you buy a movie or, or some kind of clip, right? there's more to it than just one single clip. Okay, so when you start a DVD, there's a, there's a title screen, there's a home screen, and you take out your control, and you're able to select what you wanna do, how you're gonna proceed. And so, usually you get a movie, then maybe some DVDs, depends on how much you pay for it, will include some deleted scenes. Some DVDs come with bloopers. And then if you really pay a pretty penny, they will come with a clip that's called The Making Of, and whatever the title of the movie is. Essentially, it's a film of how that film was made. And so after watching a film, you can go back to the home screen, you can select the making of blank, and you can get the behind the scenes look at what took place and how this movie was recorded. Well, it's interesting that as we think of Christmas, naturally, we tend to think of its origin going back to Bethlehem, going back to Matthew chapter 1. We think of The manger, we think of Mary and Joseph and and the rest of the well known stories that we encounter in both uh, Matthew and Luke. But what if I told you that Christmas did not begin with Bethlehem? What if I told you that in this book, the Bible, there is a passage that can be appropriately titled The Making of Christmas? And having seen how this Christmas plays out, year after year, we are reminded about the stories from Matthew and Luke. Would you be interested in going behind the scenes and learning how Christmas originated? Who initiated the events of Christmas? And in my humble opinion, Matthew, or uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is the ultimate Christmas text. Beginning with chapter 7 of Hebrews, the author writes to his Christian audience to differentiate with great clarity between the Old and the New Covenant, specifically as it pertains to the high priest and the sacrifices that were offered in both systems. And after arguing, beginning with chapter 7, that Christ is a much better high priest than any of the sons of Aaron. He goes on in chapter 10 to discuss the the quality of both sacrifices, those offered in the old and the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I want us to consider here this morning the first 18 verses as we begin in chapter 10, verse 1. Let's read together. The author writes, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never... By the same sacrifices which are continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore... When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest Stands daily minister, and in offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, and after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And we won't have time to look at each of these verses in depth, but as we go through this passage, I want us to focus on the central theme of the entire section, and that is simply this, that Jesus took on the body to accomplish that which the animal sacrifices could not do, which is to take away the sins of his people and forever make them perfect before the Father. Jesus took on the body in order to accomplish that which the Old Testament system had absolutely no provisions for. And before going behind the scenes, so to speak, here in chapter 5, the author here begins with verse 1 by focusing on these Levitical sacrifices, and so we must begin here. And in keeping with our series title, I want us to consider two truths this morning. Number one is this. The Word became flesh because of the insufficiency of the old sacrifices. The Word became flesh because of the insufficiency of the old sacrifices. And I want us to focus by looking at the first four verses on three things here. The insufficiency of the sacrifice is seen in their inability to bring sinners to God. It's the first thing. In the inability to bring sinners to God. If you look at verse 1 with me, if we were going to remove all the subordinate clauses here in verse 1, the verse would read something like this. Look at verse 1. For the law, and then in the middle of the verse, can never and then go to the end of the verse, make perfect those who draw near. If you were to boil down the simple truth of verse 1, it is this, the law can never make perfect those who draw near to God. The sacrifices that the author has in mind are the annual sacrifices that were prescribed by God that were offered during the day of atonement. The Old Testament saint desired to be in the presence of God but had absolutely no way of getting there. Only the high priest himself allowed to enter the holies of holies once a year could be in the presence of God and have an opportunity to encounter God. And here this author is simply concluding that the law was unable to bring perfection. Indeed, it wasn't designed to. Because he continues on and he says, since it has only a shadow of good things to come. This word shadow refers to a a, a pale shadow, an, an outline, so to speak. For those of you who are painters or, or artists here among us, when you begin to draw or when you begin to paint something, let's say you're drawing a portrait and so you're making an, an initial outline of a face. That initial outline is this shadow that he is talking about. And afterwards, as you draw your outline, you begin to pick up different shades of colors, right? And you begin to paint and filling the rest of the things. That initial sketch is what he's talking about that the law represents. The law is a shadow. It's an outline. It's a pale shadow of the good things to come. What are these good things? Well, if you read Hebrews in its entirety, it's the promised perfection. The blessing of the new covenant, our access to God where sinners can finally be made right with him. So the good things to come here, circle it, underline it, this is the promised perfection that will come with the coming king. But the function of the law was to point forward to that which was perfect, or complete because he says that the law is a shadow and not the very form of things. It's not a complete painting. It's not a complete portrait. The law's inability to make sinners perfect and bring them to God the Father is further highlighted by the legal provision of an annual observance of the Day of Atonement, which is really a candid acknowledgement that the sacrifices offered Each year lacked ultimate efficacy. The reason why they were being offered year by year, day by day, is because ultimately they couldn't do the job. Because if the old law was able to bring perfection, then surely the author reasons in verse 2 that the sacrifice would come to an end. Because once perfected, the sinners would no longer have had the consciousness of sins. And that is how he transitions into verse 2. Which brings us to the second reason why the Old Testament sacrifices are inefficient and And that is that they were unable to remove sin. These sacrifices were unable to remove sin. If the Levitical sacrifice... Was sufficient in that they were able to cleanse our conscience, then the worshipers would have enjoyed this unrestricted communion with God and wouldn't necessarily need that priest. Now, look with me at verse 2 otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. This word for conscience, right? refers to this God-giving ability. It's really a God-giving faculty built in into every single person, which makes you aware of faults. And as you become aware of wrongdoing and faults, your conscience stirs up feelings of guilt. It brings up this sense of guilt Because of sin, therefore, guilt plagues all men, from Old Testament to the New. The sense of guilt itself is not enjoyable, but this device called conscience serves a very good purpose. Well, the Old Testament saints were never fully freed from this awareness of their own guilt. And this is The point of chapter or verse 2. The Old Testament saint was never freed from that sense of guilt. William Lane writes the expression, the consciousness of sins, connotes the Hebrew sense of a burden, smitten heart, which which became pronounced on the day of atonement. It was necessary to confront the holiness of God. And as long as this sense of sin and transgression with respect to God remained, there could be no effective service to God. Brothers and sisters, we who sit here on the right side of the cross, it is only after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we Christians can come to a place of knowing that in Christ there is now no condemnation, something that Paul exclaimed in Romans chapter 8. Before the appearing of Christ, everyone was smitten, and that guilty conscience was ever present, which made you pick out a lamb and bring it to the temple in order to sacrifice it to the Lord. Look at verse 22 of chapter with me. let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Only the blood of Christ cleanses and purifies our conscience once and for all. What a wonderful blessing we all experience as believers, as Christians on this side of the cross, because it was not so with the Old Testament believers. First reason why they were inefficient is because they could not bring us to God. Second, because they were unable to remove sin. Thirdly, they were a means to temporary appeasement. The Old Testament sacrifices were simply a means to temporarily cover our Sins. The Old Testament sacrifices, look at it, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. Simply put, when you look at the temple, when you look at the law, when you look at your sheepfold, there's just this endless reminder that I have sinned and I must offer to the Lord what has been prescribed. The Day of Atonement ceremonies each year reminded people of the fact that something had to be done about their sin, which also required certain action. You had to bring a sacrifice. But these ceremonies had no more efficacy than that. They were simply a reminder. I'll read you what one of the authors said in reference to this verse, he says the sacrifices of the old covenant may ritually cleanse the surface, but people are still left with a guilty conscience. In fact, the whole day of atonement ritual, repeated annually, is like a sledgehammer to the human spirit, pounding away year after year after year after year with its constant battering away on the theme of sin. In other words, it does not work to heal It works only to drub it into us that we are sinful, 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 guilty, and unacceptable before God. That is the point of the Old Testament sacrifices. Through these daily and annual reminders, these sacrifices, they served as a pointer, as a schoolmaster to Jesus Christ who would ultimately come as the saints of old brought their lambs in faith and offered them up on the altar, they waited for God to provide the ultimate sacrifice. Because look at verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is the key verse in the entire passage. What is at stake here is what can wash away my sin. You ultimately need a solution for this problem. You can punt, but ultimately, what will take care of my sin? Who will ultimately deal with our inability to please God and make us perfect so that we can stand in the presence of God? Certainly the animal sacrifices did not do. Therefore, Therefore, verse 5, since the old law was insufficient, surely God had determined that it would be so. There required another way. There required another sacrifice, another atonement which would accomplish all that the Old Testament sacrifices could not do. So we come to our second main point, and that is this. The word became flesh to accomplish the final atonement. And the final, final atonement is this, not the reminder of sins, but the removal of sins. Jesus Christ accomplished what the Old Testament law could not do. And we'll be spending bulk of our time here in verses 5 through 10, focusing on this conversation between the Father and the Son. And the first thing that I want us to look at is Christ willingly took on the body. I mean this is amazing text. This these verses here are, are glorious. Church, if we would just look at them deep enough and long enough, and if you don't if you don't see it at this point, just just consider this. You know, sometimes when people discuss certain conversations among oneself, right? And, and they wish they had been a part of it in order to hear what was said in a certain room. And, and oftentimes we hear a phrase like, oh, to be a fly on the wall. I wish I was there. I wish I heard what that conversation was like. Well, here in verse 5, the author of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he, he kind of peels back the curtain and he, he lets us in on the conversation before the father and the son, before the son assumed the body. This is, in fact, the, the meeting that brought forth Christmas, the birth of Jesus. This text here, in, beginning with um, verse 5, takes us beyond Bethlehem. It takes us to the divine planning room where the plans for Bethlehem were formed. Think about this, before the world and time as we know ever came into being, the triune God came up with a plan of redemption and get this, before there was even a need for redemption. The triune God had a council and they came up with a plan of redemption before there was even single sin committed. How do I know that? Well, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, and just trying to encourage these brothers and sisters who are going through tough times, he is reminding them about what the Lord did for them, what Jesus did for them. And he says, listen, think about your Think about your redemption. Think about what he has done for you. And he says, remember that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life. And in verse 19, he says, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then he continues to now talk and focus on Jesus. And he says, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the plan was set in motion for him to be a blameless and a spotless sacrifice, but has appeared in these last times, pointing to his incarnation. Christmas for your sake, for the sake of you, Peter writes. Here in verse five, when when Christ is ready to go into the world, when he's ready to become incarnate, he stands, so to speak, on the outskirts of the world, on the edge, and he has this conversation bef- with his Father. And look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. Two things I want us to focus on here. Number one, the father's proposal. The father's proposal. He says, Jesus, looking at his father, he says, Father, you prepared a body for me. The father prepares a body for his son. Notice that this conversation takes place before Jesus assumes the body in mary's womb this is before he is born and he looks at the father and he says father you you don't you don't accept these sacrifices in the old testament the millions of sacrifices that were offered you don't accept but you prepared a body for me and here i come here i come it is the father's initiative and what we see here in the father's proposal is the great love of God for all of us. The most famous verse in all of Scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that he gave a body to his only begotten Son so that he can come and die so whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Father's initiative is rooted in his deep love for sinners. The Father knows, indeed, he hath planned that the old sacrifices and offerings were only to go so far. They were only to accomplish so little, being limited and inefficient in reference to sin when it comes to our final death. And therefore, Jesus, understanding the plan, knowing full well, he says, Father, the sacrifices, the offerings, the whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin, You have not desired. These four terms here are intended to cover all the main types of offerings prescribed in the Levitical law. Yes, God instituted the plan, the system of sacrifices in the Old Testament because if you look below in verse 8, the author says they are offered according to the law. It was a good thing to offer these sacrifices. But what does it mean that he was not pleased with them? When these offerings were being brought, right, with the right attitude to the temple, with humility, with with repentance, with wholehearted obedience and love, then, then God was pleased. And all you got to do is just read the Old Testament to find out that the Lord was pleased in these kind of sacrifices. When they were offered it with hypocrisy, then he confronted all the offerers. He confronted all the givers. You, all you got to do is just go to Isaiah chapter 1 and see God angry because these people come with the wrong attitude, trampling the courts, bringing in lame and dumb animals. He says, I, I don't want anything to do with this. Get away. Fix your attitude. Fix your offering. Then you come back and you come and offer me what is due me because I am holy. But... What the author is saying here, that even though all of these sacrifices put together were performed by the law, indeed they were required by the law, they ultimately did not satisfy God. Why? Because of verse four. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Brothers and sisters, the reason why God was ultimately not pleased is because there would come a time where someone would have to pay for these sins. There was an inherent deficiency in this system. They were a temporary appeasement. Remember, these sacrifices simply kind of kicked the can down the road. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna expect Christ to come now. He will come later. For now, I want you to obey For now I want you to come in and and offer them with the right attitude, with faith that ultimately your sins will be covered later by someone I will provide, by a better sacrifice. But for now you offer. But ultimately when you look at it, it's the end that God has in mind. These were temporary appeasements. But what happens when the ultimate end comes? Look, if you're, If you're here this morning and and you you are not a Christian, uh, you you don't love Jesus, you don't live for Christ, um, and you live a pretty good life, that is not why Jesus assumed His body. Whether you're not you're doing well today, is not the point. Your final end will be miserable. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Ultimately it's what happens at the end. Do you have a savior that when your life expires, you can claim that he took the penalty of my sin? Where you're going to end is the point. Yes, Jesus' sacrifice has definite impact on the way you and I live today, and certainly many of us can attest to that this morning. But the ultimate question we need to ask is this, who's going to pay the ultimate price for sin? definitely was in these animals. You might be doing good right now, but that's not why Jesus came. And the father, he, he sees the ultimate end. And, and without the prospect of Jesus, his son, that end is terrible for all of us. The father then, as in Ephesians chapter two, verse four says, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, fashioned and prepared a body for Jesus. This word prepared in verse 5, it speaks about God taking up a body and making it so that it would be suitable and fit for his son in order to accomplish the very purpose for which he came. So when the triune God is conversing within the Trinity, the Father proposes that if men are going to be saved, If men are going to be rescued from the final judgment they deserve, the son has to take on the body and go into the world. So we see the father's proposal. Consider the son's commitment. Look what he says, verse 7. Then I said, behold, here I come. Father, I I am here, sent me. Father, I will go into the world. I am ready to do, Jesus says, everything that is necessary. And, and, And the son, like the father, clearly understands the final end of humanity. Unless I do this, sinners have no chance of survival. Sinners will not see God. Sinners will remain in exactly the same position And ultimately worse than the Old Testament saints. Sinners will suffer the just penalty of their evil for all eternity. The son, like the father, is compelled by his love for sinners. Just consider John 15, 9. Just as the father has loved me, I have loved you. Why did Christ take on the body? As the father loves, so do I. In 1513, he says, greater love has no one than this, that the one who lays his life for his friends. You are my friends, and I lay down my life for you. Later on, the apostle Paul, considering the love of God and just testifying personally, he says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and he ends with this, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Oh, the love of Christ. Surely Jesus was motivated to bring glory to the Father, but he was moved by our inability to remove a debt that will inflict an eternal curse of God. Isn't that why we speak of God's love? Isn't that why we preach the gospel to those who are lost today? They may live their best life now, but church, don't let anyone's present bliss fool you into not thinking about their eternal and their future damnation. Don't think just because your neighbor is doing well that he doesn't need Jesus. He needs Jesus because of the prospect of death and the lack of atoning sacrifice on his behalf. We see his willing submission in the fact that the word will and desire is mentioned here in verses 5 through 10 five times. Christ is willing to do that which the Father purposed. What is he willing to do? Look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, Christ is willing to come into the world. The term world here and other places in the Bible. It's not simply a reference to location. Jesus is willing to come down to earth. Jesus is willing to walk in in Galilee or, or walk in other territory. It's not a simple reference to location, but it oftentimes speaks of an environment that you enter. Consider this. It's almost like saying if you're a Jew during World War II, it's almost like a son would come up to the father and he says, okay, father, I will go to Auschwitz. I will go to that camp and, and, and assume suffering and assume death. There's a certain association of danger with this location. There is a, an anticipation of pain. So that's what the author wants you to think about. Therefore, when he comes into the world, don't just skip over that. Think about everything that Christ has encountered here while in the flesh. I mean, consider the the language that Jesus uses here while on earth. He says, I have a cup to drink. You can't drink that cup. Only I have that cup to drink. He says, I have an experience to undergo. He uses words like agony, humiliation, oppression, hatred, accusation, and so on. Why? Because he took on the body and he came into the world. The world is a hostile place, and you and I know that it's hard to serve Jesus in the world. And the Son of God is fully aware of that, but he's committed to the Father's plan. He's willing to come into the world. He is willing to become a sacrifice. He's willing to become a sacrifice. If you haven't noticed yet, but in your Bibles, verses 5 through 7 are indented, maybe capitalized too, because it's a quote that the author borrows from Psalm 40, Psalm 40, verse six and eight. I want us to, to go to this Psalm, Psalm 40, verse six and eight. I'll just read this quickly. And when he comes sacrifices and meal offerings, you have not desired my ears. You have opened burn offerings and sin offering. You have not required. Then I said, behold, I come In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. If you notice the difference between Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, Sacrifices and meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened. And if you look at your text in Hebrews, Jesus says, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. But a body you have prepared for me. What is the difference... And how do we reconcile the two passages? The author of Hebrews here, he's quoting from the Greek uh, version, from the Greek copy of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, instead of directly quoting the Hebrew text. And probable explanation for the difference is that those who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, instead of translating word for word, they took on the interpretive paraphrase of the Hebrew text. And that is in fact what I think the author of Hebrews is doing here. He takes on the sense of what the psalmist meant and he wrote it that way. Now, you may ask, how does my ear you have opened have anything to do with a body you have prepared for me? But consider this, my ear you have opened. The ear is the organ by which we hear God's command in relationship to him in order to submit in obedience to God. So when, when God speaks, you hear with your ear and you joyfully submit to his will. So, so Christ here, in essence, is saying, I am coming, Lord, to do your will because you, you prepared a body for me and I'm going to assume that body. And another way to say that is, Father, you have prepared a body for me in which I can live out my full obedience but a body you have prepared for me. I'm going to do your will, Father. I'm taking on this body to perfectly obey you because of what they fail to do, what we fail to do. Jesus understands our failure. That is why we're cursed and have no prospect of seeing God. That is why our sins ultimately re- remain. Even though the sacrifices, Old Testament sacrifices, are being offered, there is no removal final. There is no final forgiveness of sin. So I will come and I will take on the body. I will obey to the end. That is why when you read Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, this verse just takes on a life of its own. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We sinners are cursed because we can't fully obey God. And Jesus says, I'll do it, Father. Oh, church, if if today you doubt the love of God, let me ask you, why? Why do we still doubt the love of God? Has he not sufficiently demonstrated his willingness to leave the heavenly glories? to take on a human nature, experience the mockery by sinners, and walk up to the cross and be nailed with murderers. Is it not enough for us to be convinced? Is it not enough for us to be pierced in conscience, to be overwhelmed with the kindness and goodness of our Lord? He has done it. Jesus took on a body. Merry Christmas. Don't doubt his love. Don't doubt the sufficiency of his sacrifice. The offering of Jesus' body was superior to the offering of those prescribed in the Old Testament. And that's what ultimately the author says in verses 8 and 9. Notice how he interprets this quote. Because there's now a better sacrifice, a superior sacrifice. He says he takes away the first in order to establish the second. The first order is abolished and the new order is established. Surely, this was the Father's plan all along. He says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. In fact, the very psalm that he's quoting here, Psalm 40, is found in the Old Testament scroll, and it always prefigured these sacrifices, always looked forward to something that will take place in the future. Why are these original sacrifices set aside according to the author? Because the nature of these sacrifices is not proportionate to the offense of the sinner before a holy God. That's why. They're just animals. They're dumb and in many ways unwilling. Do we really think that all that we've done, all the... The lying, all the stealing, all the hating, all of our failure to live up to God's standard of righteousness, to please him rather than, you know, pleasing ourselves that a dumb animal can remove the guilt that we have accumulated beginning with Adam all the way till now. No way. It was never meant to be, the author says. The original sacrifices were installed to point to the ultimate So we see first that Christ willingly took on the body to to become a perfect sacrifice. Second, Christ's single offering perfected the worshiper. Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Christ's one-time offering did what the daily and the yearly Old Testament sacrifices could not do. By God's will... He desired that through the offering of the body of Jesus, all those who come by faith would be sanctified once and for all. The word became flesh because of atonement. Atonement explains incarnation. Christmas happened so that the sin of the world may be put away by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Christ's life in his body yielded perfect obedience to god even to death so perfect was this sacrifice and this presentation in his life to god that no repetition of it is either necessary or even possible he says it was done once and for all now this sanctification that he has in mind here is a little bit different than the sanctification that paul oftentimes write about the sanctification here refers to us being made Christians, us being made believers, not in developing Christian character. So once you read this, in fact, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified, he brought us into a relationship with, Jesus, with God so that we can have direct access to God even as we're being molded and developing in Christian character. Notice how the author continues to emphasize the difference between the old and the new. He says, consider the Old Testament priest, verse 11. Every priest stands daily. They stood daily, offering the same sacrifices, time after time after time. And it was not accidental. Consider that um, the tabernacle had never had chairs in it. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. Why? Because... They were to find no rest in their ministry. The Old Testament priest never took time off. As soon as he was done with his role, another one would swing by and would continue to do that. But Christ, on the other hand, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. There's no need to stand anymore. His posture indicates the finished work. His position at the right hand of the Father indicates a place of honor and high esteem. We were just singing, you are highly exalted. Why? Because of his work on the cross. From the shame of the cross, he has been exalted to the highest glory. Awaiting until his enemies made a footstool. And I think what the author wants us to do is by quoting this passage, he he gives a little warning to his readers not to let themselves be numbered among the enemies of Christ by rejecting the sacrifice. You can't reject this sacrifice. You gotta offer this you gotta accept the sacrifice because it was offered on your behalf. If you reject it, you are done, my friend. What the generations of Levitical sacrifices could not accomplish, Christ accomplished once for all. By one offering, Jesus has purified, consider this, his people from all defilement of sins and assured them of a permanent relationship with God. I was reading a, a, a book by John Bunyan. He recalled an experience he had when he was uncertain of his acceptance before the Lord because of his ongoing sin. And after much doubt, he was confronted by the Lord with these words, and he writes, Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot save your soul? But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on you. I will deal with you accordingly, as I am pleased with him. Brothers and sisters, this is an encouragement for us this morning, that we have a sacrifice, we have a final atonement. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then finally, in verses 15 through 18, Christ's single offering fulfilled the new covenant promise. And he goes to Jeremiah 31 And he quotes, beginning in verse 16, this passage, in order to just uh, sort of highlight us, give us a highlight of that passage. But his real focus is in verse 17. Because he gives you the introduction. And then he says in verse 17, and here's the point. Because of what Christ has done, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which daily reminded you of sin christ's sacrifice results in full forgiveness where our sins are wiped out and there's no need to remember them god does not remember our sins they are wiped out because of the son and when there's true forgiveness he says there's no need to offer another sacrifice Verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Church, this Christmas, may you remember that the days of endless animal sacrifices are over. Whenever you, whether you're in the desert like the Jews or you're in the city, man, don't try to absolve your guilt by bringing God unworthy sacrifices. I mean, you can be sitting here this morning and thinking, Lord, at least I showed up at church. Not many people do that. At least I am here, accepted. Or you may be pacifying your conscience by telling yourself how much you do for your family or how much you serve in the community or fill in the blank. There are multiple ways that we deal with silencing our conscience. But ultimately, nothing will cleanse our conscience from guilt unless this happens that Jesus does it, and we come by faith to Jesus Christ. If you're one of these this morning, please stop. Let us all look to Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the Father and through the sacrifice of his body, perfected for all times us who draw near. You are perfect in God's eyes because of Jesus. Confess and come to Christ. That is why verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. We don't need to wait for anyone else. It's been done. The word became flesh to accomplish our atonement. Glory be to God. Father, we thank you. Thank you for reminding us of our Lord Jesus Christ, oh, how blessed we are to have experienced the new birth, to have been made perfect in your sight, and to now reap the benefits of your Spirit living in us and transforming us into your likeness. Oh, Lord, we pray, may we look more and more like you. And this Christmas, in light of everything that's taken place, we would rejoice because you sent your son to take on the body and to accomplish the final atonement and remove our sin. Thank you, Father. Amen.